And as I mentioned this week, we're starting a new series in Ecclesiastes called Live Backwards, Learning to Live in the Light of the End. And so for October and November, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, and uh, the Live Backwards is kind of a playful spin on our uh, Lake Nona's tagline, Live Forward, we're talking about Live Backwards. And uh, I really got excited about preaching through Ecclesiastes about uh, last year, and then several, a couple weeks ago when I picked it back up and decided to kind of move forward with this series and started reading through it. Have you ever had that experience where you're like, that seemed like a really good idea at the time, then when it comes on you, you're like, what was I thinking? Um, sort of have that experience this past couple weeks is really wrestling. This is a, a beautiful book, um, but it's a difficult book. It's a mysterious book. It's a challenging uh, book. It, it, it forces up upon us some of life's deepest, hardest, most challenging questions. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to really wrestle uh, with this book. Um, one of its key ideas, and we call it Live Backwards, is because it's going gonna, it's gonna to force upon us the reality that death and judgment are the only fixed realities in life. You know, we like to say death and taxes are the only thing certain. It says, well, it's death. We, we're 50% right. It's death and judgment. They're the only fixed realities. Everything else is uncertain. And many of the things in our life simply bring frustration and sorrow and actually, I want to encourage you over the next eight weeks to spend time reading through it multiple times. And there'll be times where you're reading through it and you're wrestling. And you're thinking, wow, I can't believe this is in the Bible. And this seems so pessimistic. But this seemingly pessimistic book offers a very profound perspective on how we can live well. It actually is profoundly positive, even though there's a sense uh, that it's negative. It teaches us that if we want to live wisely now, we have to recognize and embrace the limitations that God has placed on us and our world. It says that God has given us a world that we, we cannot completely control, we cannot fully understand, but we can enjoy. And as long as you try to completely control it, you'll be left frustrated. If you try to fully understand everything, you'll be left frustrated, but you can enjoy it. So it's a path for us for how to live well, how to enjoy life in the midst of the difficulties. It'll challenge us to say much of the cause of our anxiety in this world is our deep-seated desire that will demand more of ourselves than we can give and will demand more of the world than it's able to provide. You know, one of the things it's going to do is it will kind of, it, it's a hammer that will shatter our ambitions where if we really try to either know it all or have it all, it will shatter those for us. And that's actually a gift. So we're going to go through this kind of the way, um, the way we'll move through, uh, move through the book is you kind of think of the book almost like a series of seminars. I mean, those are almost like TED Talks, kind of seminars, um, like the Lake Nona Life Project, where maybe people come together, and then they have experts from all of these different fields who talk about these different things. Chapters 1 through 6 really set, kind of, it's a series of seminars, but the theme of chapter 1 through 6 is, what are you working for? What are you striving? Do you really actually achieve or accomplish anything in all of, all of the energy that you're pouring into life is anything permanent? Is anything purposeful? Are you achieving anything? And then in chapters 7 through 12, the end, the, the question is, all right, what can we really know? 
Is there anything? The world is filled with so much uncertainty. I mean, how, how do we handle our limitations? How do we deal with the obvious injustices that we see? How do we deal with, or is there any way to mitigate the risk in life? And so almost think of it like in October, we're going to have the se- seminar one where we wrestle with that question that we'll unpack a little bit more. What, what are we spending our life for, our energy? Is there any purpose to our labor, our toil? What are we seeking after? And uh, this month, there's kind of four lessons we'll, we'll learn that Ecclesiastes will teach us. And uh, I'll send all these out. You can write them down, but, or don't worry, just listen. But uh, we need to learn what we should seek after. We need to learn, that'll be chapter two. We need to learn about the seasons we're in. That'll be chapter three. Then we need to learn how to share, chapter four and five. And then we'll need to learn when we need to be silent, this gift that it's going to give to us. So that'll be October. And then in November, we'll move into what can we really know? Is there any way that we can actually uh, love our limitations? Is there any way that we can burst our illusions? And then how do we live in light of the end? So that's where we're going. So this morning, we're just going to kind of set the stage with verses 1 through 11. It sets the stage for an understanding of the book. And there's three words, kind of mental pegs, that I want you to hang um, the truth of this morning on. It's the words gift, grind, and gain. Gift, grind, gain. And these can be three words that we can actually almost hang all of the truth is going to teach us on these three words. The gift, it tells us about the gift we need, the grind we're in, and the gain he offers. So let's start with the gift we need. Look at verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So the gift we need. Now, one of the really um, fun comical, humorous, exciting things about the stage of life we're in. We, we have four little kids, uh, six, seven, three, about to be two. And watching the growth and development of their imagination is, is really enjoyable. Our, our fourth child um, is very shy and he doesn't like attention. And what he started doing anytime attention is directed to him, he started to pretend that he's a puppy. And it's the cute, I mean, I'm biased, but it is the cutest thing you will ever see. Now, one day he's going to realize this is not the best strategy to deflect attention. But then he, you know, he's one years old and his imagination is already firing that he's learning, you know, to pretend to be a puppy. And, you know, one of the things you watch the kids play and it's amazing how, um, you know, in our living room instantly it can be transformed into a zoo. Well, it's always a zoo, just in different fa- fashions. <laughs> But it can be transformed into a zoo or a farm. It can become a garage, a hospital. Um, It can become a school, which blows my mind. My daughters will pretend to be at school. I spent the whole time in school wanting to be out, and you're away, and you're pretending to be there. I don't understand that. And it can be a battlefield. It can be a tea party. It can be a stadium. And uh, they don't have to be taught how to live in pretend land. They just do. They just live in pretend land. And you know, there's some beautiful things about pretend land. Like when we're in pretend land, daddy always fixes the car in the garage. The superheroes always save the day. We always hit the home run. Um, But I wonder, you know, is there a certain danger in dwelling in pretend land? You know, like we have um, two of our kids have these cute little cuddly teddy bears 
that they love and are their best friends and bring them joy and comfort. And I wonder how, you know, it's kind of like, all right, you can have this teddy bear now, but if you ever see a real bear, don't go hug it. That will not be a good strategy for you. There's certain things we're going to have to learn. Certain things are, um, can live in pretend land. Uh, one, of, one of the hard lessons of life is how we tell the difference between pretend world and the real world. One of our favorite games we play right now, one of my favorites, is ice cream shop. So we go to the playground, and you purchase ice cream from the ice cream shop with mulch. So you, we, we got all the money you can purchase, and then you're given the ice cream, and you can eat as much as you want. But at some time, you have to realize that that's not how the real world is. And what Ecclesiastes actually is a gift to us, the gift is that it will burst some our pretend make-believe bubbles. So we'll live in, in, we'll try and live in pretend land, and it's going to burst those bubbles. One commentator, a couple other images, one commentator says, Ecclesiastes is an incendiary device that will explode all of our make-believe games. And it's, it'll jolt us in reality. Another image, you can think of it almost like a lighthouse. Kind of this lyrical lighthouse that's going to point out to you the rocks. There's rocks in reality that if you don't know how to navigate, you're going to crash into them. And it's going to point those out uh, for us. It gives us this heavenly window into this uh, perspective on, heavenly perspective on earth's biggest questions. Like, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Why so much injustice? Does it, there's things that just seem random. And so it's this gift to us. So look at the first lines, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the words of the preacher. Um, all throughout this series, I'm going to be referring to Solomon. I think this book is, is Solomonic. Like it might not have been written by Solomon, but it represents, presents uh, things that I think he surely would have said. So you'll hear me say Solomon. I think it's similar to, you know, like Matthew wrote the words of Jesus and they represent his words. So the words of the preacher, that is a key line. The preacher, the, the Kohelet, the one who calls Kahal is the Hebrew word for gathering. So it's the person who gathers. He brings people together. In ancient Israel, there were two primary times people would gather. They would gather on the Sabbath for worship. And then in 2 Kings 4, it talks about the nations coming to Solomon, uh, the leaders like the Queen of Sheba coming for almost like these international wisdom conferences. And so really, I think what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes, one kind of modern parallel is this is almost like conference seminars where people are coming. Uh, It has an academic tone. It has a philosophical tone. It has a pastoral uh, tone, and they're all all here. Um, Look at verse 2. This is one of the key themes of the the book and really important to get a perspective on what does this word mean. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word, hebel, H-E-B-E-L. It's really kind of hard to translate. Vanity doesn't quite, it can kind of skew. The word actually is morally neutral. It just means breath. It means air. It means grasping. So it could be vanity. Um, At certain times it means vanity, but don't think like, what's it, Carly Simon song? Like, you're so vain. You probably think this song. So that vanity is a negative look. Um, Or meaningless. Sometimes it's translated uh, meaningless. It's actually the same word, the same word that is Abel, uh, Abel's name, Adam and Eve, their son Abel. And uh, so there is kind of a morally neutral nature to the word. What it's really getting at is that vanity, breath, 
breeze. You think about Abel. It wasn't that he was like he was a vain person. It was that his life was too short. It was just fleeting. He was here today and gone tomorrow. He was taken away too soon. Like the, the proverb, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, beauty is hebel. It means it's something that even if you have it, it just eludes your grasp. You know, one heard one time that somebody said beauty is like being born rich and then you slowly become poor as you watch it slip away. They said that's, that's, that's what vanity is. It's like something you, 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 you can't quite grasp. And that's what Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to live in a world where it seems like everything is fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I thought about maybe doing what we did in our seven deadly sins. We got theme songs for each of the seven deadly sins, and maybe we could theme song some of these. And I was thinking, I wonder what the theme song for Ecclesiastes would be. And I think uh, the song that kept coming into my, my mind was Alanis Morissette's, Isn't It Ironic? And so I don't know if you that, know that song from the 90s, you know, some of the lines is, you know, it's like a traffic jam when you're already late. It's a no smoking sign on your cigarette break. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. It's meeting the man of my dreams and then meeting his wife. Isn't it ironic? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's like a free ride when you've already paid. It's a good advice you, don't, uh, you just didn't take. And I think Solomon would love that song. And he would laugh and he'd say, yes, that's it. And actually what's really ironic is nothing you've named in that song is irony. <laughs> it's not irony, but it's, it's what I mean by vanity. It's, it's fleeting. It's life is mysterious. So like, it's not ironic that it rains on your wedding day. That's just how life is. And there's just certain things, no matter how much you try to control, you can't control. And he would say, that's what I mean by Vanity. That's hevel. That's, there's things that are just here today, gone tomorrow. There's things that no matter how hard you try to grasp and control, it's like a vapor. You grasp it and it's just, it's, it's gone. So that's what he's going to get at. When we, all throughout the book, you talk about vanity. What does it mean that life is transient? It's hard to pin down. And then actually the theme for the whole first section is verse 3. So chapters 1 through 6, verse 3 is the theme. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And you need to hear kind of the echoes from Genesis 3 when the world is cursed. You have, you know, vanity, vanity, Hebel, Abel, Abel. And then what does man, Adam, what does Adam gain by all his toil, what has been cursed? So all these echoes. And that's the real question. What do we gain or what's left over? The idea is what, what's left over after all of your toil, all your labor. So toil, don't think like your vocation, your nine to five. Think about what do you gain from anything you put energy towards? So anything in your life, family, relationships, hobbies, home, anything you put energy towards. And what Ecclesiastes is a gift to us on how we can actually find gain in these things. So it's a gift. But the first thing we got to do is we got to face the reality of the grind. And look what, he, look what he does in verse 4 through 11. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, one of those key lines from verse 3 that I forgot to mention a moment ago is his toil under the sun. One of the things the author of Ecclesiastes is really going to force us. He said, in essence, you have two ways you can view life, and one of them is under the sun. If under the sun in this material world is all there is, you have to own that. If you think all that there is is life under the sun, then you have to face that harsh reality. And so one of the things he says, life under the sun, it's a, it's a grind. And notice the three things about the grind we're in is, one, it never stops. Do you see that image? He gives three illustrations of things that they continue to work and labor and pour out all their energy, and then their work is never done. It's like the sun. The sun rises, works so hard to go across the sky, sets, and guess what it has to do tomorrow? Rise again. And then the wind. The wind blows, and if it tries to get to the, from the north to the south, there's no location. It gets all the way to the south, and then it'll start all over again. It's never, it never can land anywhere. It just has to keep blowing. And then the streams. You know, think about like the mighty rivers, the Mississippi River, all the work and the energy it takes to get that water to the ocean. And then it never stops. It just keeps going. And one of the things he's saying, you have to face just the, the rhythmic grind that we're in. He says it's, like, it's almost like all of life is just chasing its tail, chasing its tail. Um, you know, you think about uh, the reality of the grind you're in. Does that discourage you? You know, one sense, life is like the dishes. You know, we do a whole series of kind of like Forrest Gump af aphorisms. You know, life is like dishes. No matter how hard or how many you do today, guess what? <laughs> you're going to have more to do tomorrow. Life is like the laundry. No matter how hard or how, how much you do today, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have tomorrow. I'm always, you know, one of the things that saddens me, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. And one of the things that our family, we go all out for the Thanksgiving meal. It's my, my aunt's moment of glory. And when Cynthia and I, we, we first got married, even till now, um, one of our, well, it's not like a, just one of our, not marital disputes, that's too dramatic. But I have to just warn her that at Thanksgiving lunch, like, I'm going to put on a performance. Like, this is going to be a multi-plate performance. So she kind of gets a little offended by how much I eat. But I have to warn her, like, I am, this is, we, I've waited all year to eat my uncle's Tennessee boiled custard, and I am not stopping with one plate. I will not eat breakfast. I will not eat dinner. And one of the sad things about the glory of Thanksgiving, no matter how good it is, do you know what situation we're in the next morning? We're hungry again. I mean, you, I will eat in such a way where I say I, that I am so satisfied. I don't need to eat again for the rest of my life. And then the next morning, you're hungry again. And that's actually what he's forcing upon us to face, that this is the way all of life is. And the question is, does it depress you? You're like, is there anything that can get me off of this loop? And then notice the next thing he says, not only does this rhythm never stop, there's nothing new. 
One of the more famous words in the book, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It's already been in ages past. And that's really hard for us as Americans because, like, our entire economy functions on convincing us that this toilet paper is new and improved and we need it and we have to buy it. Like, here's a sociological experiment. Go to Walmart today and pick any aisle... Just walk down it with a little pad. You can keep the note on your phone so people don't think you're strange. And just notice how many times something gets advertised to you as new and improved. It's because we're obsessed with novelty. And I think part of it is we feel this aching, repetitive rhythm of life, and we're, we're, we're grasping for something. There has to be something new. There has to be something that can break the cycle to satisfy us. But the reality is novelty can't save you. Novelty can't satisfy you. Even in big things, as we move into election year, there'll be kind of, we need new blood in the government, and even if a new government comes, it's still a government. Is there anything that's new? It says, no, there's nothing new. And then to make things worse, in verse 11, there's nothing remembered. Nothing new, nothing remembered. There is no remembrance of former things. And it's, when, one of the things that he's, he, he wants to kind of goad you with, is there anything that you do that's going to be remembered? I haven't seen this movie, and it's always dangerous to make reference to movies you haven't seen in sermons. But uh, the, the movie yesterday, uh, the premise of the movie is that um, everybody in the entire world has forgotten that the Beatles existed. And then this one kind of struggling music artist remembered, he knew all the songs, and he starts singing them, and people think he's this genius and has written all these amazing songs. And part of the kind of the funny premise is, you know, what if the whole world forgot that the Beatles existed? And I don't know if you remember, in, in the 60s, John Lennon actually said they were going to be more famous than Jesus. That by the, the year 2000, most of the world have, will have forgotten that Jesus existed, but they'll remember the Beatles, and here's a thought experiment. Like instead of going to Walmart, what if you went to maybe sub-Saharan Africa and you took a poll and you asked, I don't know, 1.2 billion people who live there, have you ever heard of John Lennon? How many of them do you think would say yes? And you asked, have you heard of Jesus? Do you know how many would say yes? And so here in our life, the reality is no matter how big we think we are, no matter how big the kingdoms that we think we've created, the harsh reality is it, within 100 years from now, most people won't remember at all. So think about your own family. How many of you actually know the name of your great-grandfather? I thought about it saying, if you do, raise your hand, but I won't do that. But do you know the name of your great-grandfather? Most of us don't even know the name of our great-grandfather. If your own family doesn't remember you, what hope is that the rest of the world's going to remember you? So the reality is that 100 years from now, chances are really good. Nobody in the world is going to know you existed. And if that's depressing to you, you need Ecclesiastes. You need the book because it'll give you perspective on what actually really matters to live well right now. But if that actually causes a little smile to come across your face, I think Solomon would say, good, you're halfway to happiness. You're almost there because you're not putting undue hopes into your own life. 
But one of the things he wants to force you on, you're, you were in the grind. Now the question that we'll have to ask through this whole series is what type of gain can we have? That's the key question. What does man gain from all this labor, all this work, your life? Is there anything at the end of it you're going to have that you can look to and say, this is, this is gain, this is lasting? And in Ecclesiastes, you only get small rays of hope. But one of the things we want to do is we want to read this book in light of the resurrection. We want to le- read it in the light of the gospel. As we read it, we want to put on our gospel glasses and we want to hear um, the wisdom that he's telling us. What do we gain? One of the things we can gain if we read this book in the light of Christ is that we can actually abandon all of our human illusions of self-importance. We can abandon all of our pretensions of pride and we can embrace humility. We can embrace joy. It's, it, what we gain is a really hard look at reality which is a gift to us so we can prepare how to live well in the lighting and the end. Actually, one of the, one of the greatest things we gain is that you start learning how to pretend when you're less than one years old, and we don't ever stop. But what shifts is just what we're pretending about. You know, the, there's an adult version of let's pretend or let's play make-believe. We pretend that if we can just get this promotion at work, then we'll be satisfied. We pretend that if we can just see our church grow to a certain number, then we'll feel meaning and we'll feel significant. We pretend that if our children can just succeed, then that'll validate me as a human and a parent. We pretend that if I can just get control of my schedule, then I'll be able to be the person that I want to be. We pretend that by pouring our lives out in these certain ways, we can leave lasting legacy and significance. We pretend that if I can only change jobs, then things will be different. Or if I can just change my spouse or change my house or change my blouse, then my life will be different. So we live in the pretend world and pretend that altering these things will free us from the tedium that we experience. But the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that in essence what fuels so much of the the tedium of life is that we're living um, all throughout the series we're going to have to think, are we living under the sun or are we living under the sun? Which sun are we actually living under? See, if we're living under the sun, the S-U-N, then this is all true. We're just living in this repetitive uh, rat race that nothing will be new, nothing will be remembered, but there's another way we can live. This isn't the only sun we can live under. We can actually live under the S-O-N, and under the S-O-N, all of the deep problems that we experience in life can actually be transformed. So actually, pull up the, yeah, let's look at these three things and just think about how in light of who Christ is and what he's done, how those three problems actually have all been transformed. And you can find relief from those. The world never stops in its rhythmic role, but we can find rest. You know, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, real, deep, profound, soul rest. And then one of the, the amazing things about Ecclesiastes, it'll say if you try and build, even if you have the grandest ambitions on the planet and try and build a kingdom under the sun, 
eventually it's all going to get washed away. Even the grandest building projects will get forgotten. But if you try under the other sun, even hand, something as small as handing a cup of cold water in his name will not be forgotten. It's meaningful. And so under the sun, our work can be transformed. And it's transformed because of his work. When we were going through the Gospel of John, we saw that Jesus over and over said, I came to do my Father's work. I have a toil. I have a labor. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. My work is complete so that now your work can be um, taken off of this rhythmic um, treadmill of tedium and give it, be given meaning and purpose. And then the question under the sun, is there anything that can be new? The reality is no, not under this sun. But as we saw when we went through Revelation, that the risen son in Revelation 21, 5 says, Behold, he who is seated on the throne says, I am making all things new. So the question is, where do we look for that newness? He can make you new by his gospel, by his grace. He can transform you and he can make you new. And then is there anything that can be remembered? Is there anything that can, that can last? And it's in him now, you know, he says, don't store up yourself for yourselves treasures on earth, not treasures under this sun, because moth will, moth will rust them, thieves will steal them, and they'll get washed away, but you can store up treasures in heaven under this sun. Reminded of that line, there's only one life to live and will soon be passed. Only what is done for him will last. And so there is something where we can have meaning, significance. It can be remembered so as we begin this journey down Ecclesiastes, let me encourage you uh, to a couple things. Encourage you to read it. Wrestle with it. And if there's anyone in your life who you know is searching, they're seeking, they're having big questions that they're wrestling with, this will be a good series uh, to invite them to. But the kind of the big picture is which sun are you going to live under? If you believe that this world is all there is, um, then it's going to force upon you some real hard realities. But the glory of the gospel is that that's not all there is. There's another sun that we can live under, and we can be made new, a new birth, new life, given a new commandment, new meaning, new hope, a new purpose. So we want to pray that we'll all experience that real newness that can only be found under the sun. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We pray that you would help us, pray that you help us be people who seek after uh, your word, your wisdom, your ways. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes that's going to burst our make-believe bubbles. And so all of us have come here with different make-believe bubbles, and we pray for the mercy, the grace, that your word, that it'll, it'll, it'll explode those. But then give us the clear sense of who you are, who we are, what it means to live well, what it means to live light in the end. How can we experience real meaning, real hope, real purpose? And all this we ask in Christ's holy name.